Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If not, grab a Bible from the, from the seat in front of you, one of the pew Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 3, verse 9 on page 884. So go ahead and turn there, and let's take a few minutes and read and consider and study God's Word together. So, we've been working through the book of Romans thus far, and pretty much every sermon we've kind of started with just kind of reiterating the kind of where we've come from. So, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 is Paul's thesis for his letter, right? That, that God saves sinners by his grace when they trust in Christ, that, that salvation is not found through working or earning God's favor, but it's receiving the righteousness that God imputes to people as they trust in, in Jesus. So Romans 1, he shows that Gentiles are under the, the wrath and judgment and condemnation of God. Right? Regardless of how far you are from God or how ignorant you may be of the truths of God, Paul shows that every person was created by God. They're, they're created in the image of God. They live in a world that was created by God. And so they have, some, they have enough access to truths about God to render them accountable before God for God's judgment. So kind of Jew, uh, Gentiles, unrighteous, unreligious people. And then Romans 2 is Jewish people or religious people, or people that kind of consider themselves to be righteous, people that have close proximity to the law, they possess the law, their forefathers have possessed the law for generations, and Paul says that they too are guilty before God, because it's not enough just to be in close proximity to God, it's not enough just to possess the law, you have to honor God and obey the law, and when you don't, like no one is, then you are guilty before God and deserving of his, of his judgment. So uh, that's kind of Romans 1, Romans 2. Romans 3 kind of bring, ties all, puts a bow on all of that, ties it all together. The gavel comes down. We are all, every one of us, Jew, Gentile, righteous, unrighteous, religious, non-religious, guilty before God, sinful, desert, right? Like the, the entire spectrum from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler, Paul says we are all guilty before God, deserving of his condemnation. Our only hope is God's grace. And so that's what Paul is going to kind of reiterate and drive home today. Uh, And this is the last passage in this kind of first section of the book of Romans. So, so, um, you know, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, up until until chapter 3, verse 20, deal with the condemnation of and the guilt of humanity before a holy God. In chapter 3, verse 21, we'll start next week, there's a transition where we start to see the saving righteousness and the grace of God that he extends to, to uh, sinners who trust in him, and, uh, and he imputes his righteousness to them. So this is the last text in this chunk, and then we'll start a new kind of, a new section of the gospel, of the book of Romans next week. But, for now, we'll read, we'll read chapters, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and then we'll take a few minutes and talk about it together. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we uh, bow before you this morning. We acknowledge your supremacy and your authority and your, your kingship, and we ask you to come here among us and speak to us. Lord, we ask you to convict us of our sin. We ask you to give us the gift of repentance. And we ask you to help us to run to you and to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. First slide. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? This is kind of a continuation of Paul's uh, argument and his kind of line of reasoning from Romans chapter 3 verse 1, which itself was a response to the entirety of Romans chapter 2, right? Romans 2, Paul is saying that Jewish people, citizens of, members of the nation of Israel, deserve God's wrath. That they're, that they're not entitled to eternal life simply because they are Jewish. Right? That, that a religious person is not entitled to eternal life simply because they are religious. And so Paul, in chapter 3, verse 1, kind of anticipated, this is probably going to ruffle some feathers. This is going to upset some people. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you're probably thinking, well then what advantage has... Like, what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision? So I just spent a whole chapter saying that Jewish people are not guaranteed eternal life by virtue of being Jewish. They need to trust in Jesus. And so chapter 3, verse 1, they're probably thinking, well, then what's the point? Why am I even going to be Jewish at all? Why am I even going to be religious at all if I'm not guaranteed to have eternal life? And he says there's actually tons of advantages to being a Jewish religious person. So don't write it off and think that it's of no value. Well, chapter 3, verse 9, the pendulum swings the other way. And they're like, oh, I guess if there's advantages, then, then what? Are Jews better off? And his answer is, no, not at all. So Paul is trying to, in chapter 3, verse 1 and chapter 3, verse 9, kind of, uh, you know, keep, keep the, the boundary rail, the safety rails on either side of the, the argument. He's trying to kind of reiterate over and over, being Jewish does not save you, right? That you don't go to heaven just because you're Jewish. You don't go to heaven because you're circumcised. You don't go to heaven because you're, you know, you grew up in a religious uh, family. But being Jewish or being in close proximity to people who love God and follow God is a huge advantage. It's a huge blessing. So don't underestimate it and write it off as if there's no value. Don't, don't overestimate it and presume upon it and think that you're guaranteed eternal life just because you, uh, you know, identify as a particular religion, but don't underestimate it and despise it and think, uh, what's the point in being around people that love, that love God and, and follow God? So, so Jews, in the, in the sense of being entitled to and guaranteed eternal life apart from the grace of God, Jews are no better off than anyone else. But 
in terms of having spiritual, in terms of it being spiritually advantageous, by all means, uh, Jewish people have, you know, verse, verse, chapter 3, verse 2, their advantage is much in every, in every way. He says, for we have all charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. So Paul kind of introduces a new, a new term here in verse 9, to be under So we've seen all kinds, of, all kinds of terms about morality and about sin and righteousness thus far in the book of Romans. Again, righteous and, and unrighteous, suppressing the truth, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, talk about the judgment of God and the wrath of God, but this is the first time that we see this idea of being under sin. And Paul's going to unpack this in the coming chapters, right? Uh, as we, especially as we get into chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see what it means to be under sin. But the long and short of it that we can at least establish here is that uh, sin is a, a, a significant, dramatic, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not insignificant, right? The, the, the presence of sin in our lives and the effects of sin in our lives are dramatic and complex and, and compre- comprehensive. There's a, there's a doctrine that theologians call, uh, or a, a kind of a field, a, a, an area of theology that's called homardiology, which is the doctrine of sin, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. So homardiology and uh, the doctrine, specifically the doctrine, so there's entire textbooks written about homardiology, the doctrine of, of sin, and we see a lot about homardiology in these verses, in verses 9 through, through 18. There's a lot about the doctrine of sin, a lot about uh, what sin is and, and the effects of sin in our lives as, as believers. But the long and short of it is that we can at least tell from, from this word under sin is that sin is not a... Sin, it's, sin can't be reduced to simply saying, well, I've got a choice. I, I can... I'm in line at the grocery store. I can pay or I can walk out because it's, you know, it's a scan yourself, right? So one is sin. Like there's, there's option A is not sin. Option B is sin. And that's all sin is. It's just a series of choices that we can make for which there are either rewards or, or consequences. All of that's true, right? Sin is choices that we make where there are righteous and unrighteous things to do. Uh, that, that is, that's sin. But that is, I mean... If that's all our doctrine of sin is, is that we reduce it down to moral choices that we make or don't make, then we have, according to Romans 3, a deficient homardiology. Because this, this idea of being under sin seems to imply that sin is not just a series of moral choices that we can make, good or bad, but it's also this like overwhelming, all-encompassing uh, force. That, that, can, that can actually have an effect and an impact on us and on how we, how we live. I mean, some, some verbs that are attributed to sin throughout the book of Romans. Uh, chapter 5, verse 21, sin is reigning. Chapter 6, verse 6, sin is enslaving. Chapter 6, verse 12, sin is ruling. Chapter 6, verse 21, sin is exercising lordship, Right? Uh, and we see that part of what it means to be human is that we are a slave to sin. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are freed from sin. So, so sin is pictured as this dominating, overwhelming, ruling force that wants to, um, it wants to, to dominate and hurt and destroy humanity. We're under its power, under its leverage, under its dominion. We are affected by it down to our 
to our core. And so what it means to be under sin or what it looks like to be under sin is what Paul's going to unpack in the next, you know, eight to nine verses. And he's going to draw on passages from the Old Testament to paint a picture of what it looks like to be under sin. We've charged that everyone, righteous, unrighteous, religious, non-religious, we're all under sin. And here's what it looks like to be under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. So that's a that's, uh, he's pulling that from Ecclesiastes. So yeah, each of these, almost each of these lines is going to be a, a different verse from the Old Testament. Um, but yeah, this one's from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, speaking to the universality of sin's effects on humanity, right? There, there is no person, right? It's not like we're talking about a subset of humanity. We're not talking about uh, the bottom 50% versus the top 50%. We're not talking about the people that are less righteous than you. We're talking every single person, all of us are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. Then in verse 11 and 12, Paul is, is uh, pulling from Psalm 14. And so he transit, he kind of moves from talking about the, the, the portion of or the percentage of humanity that's affected by sin and starts talking about the portion of the particular person. Like, like what, what, to, to what extent has sin worked its way into my life and my soul and my personhood? How, just how affected by sin am I? So, so uh, yeah, none is righteous means that all of humanity is affected by sin. And then verse 11 is all of, all of us, all of me is affected by, by sin. My, the entirety, of, there's no part of me that is not affected by, marred by, and, and kind of tainted by, by sin. It says no one understands, no one seeks God. So, so no one understands means that sin affects our ability to think, our, our ability to understand, our ability to reason, our ability to come to conclusions. Those things are not amoral or they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're, it's not like we've got our moral self that does good things or bad things. And then we've got our logical thinking self. But Paul says the, the sin actually affects our ability to think, our ability to reason, our ability to come to conclusions. Theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic effect of sin. And, and that word noetic uh, comes from the Greek word that means mind or thinking um, or, or uh, yeah, intellect. And so the doctrine of the noetic effect of sin means that our ability to think and reason, particularly about the things of God, particularly about the nature of God, the nature of man, spiritual realities about God and the world and the gospel, our ability to think about these things and come to conclusions that are right and true is, is hampered by sin. Now, that doesn't mean... The, the, the doctrine of the noetic effect of sin does not mean that uh, Christians are smarter than non-Christians. It doesn't mean that, that people who don't uh, believe in Jesus don't have the ability to, to think or, or, you know, cannot come to true and good conclusions, particularly in areas apart from God and spirituality, because of another doctrine called common grace. So, so... There's uh, theologians distinguish between salvific grace and common grace. Salvific grace is trust in Jesus, 
forgiven of my sin, assured of eternal life forever and ever. That's all grace from God, but it's, it's particular and it's special, specific grace for people who trust in Jesus. But there's a lot of grace that people who don't trust in Jesus enjoy that is not necessarily salvific in nature. And so, you know, every breath that any person takes, whether they're a Christian or not, is a gift from God. It's grace from God. There's countless evidences of grace in our lives that, that we share with everyone, believers and non-believers, one of which is the ability to reason, the ability to think, the ability to know. So, so all people, Christians and non-Christians, can think and know and understand, but our ability to think and understand is hampered by, it's, it's darkened by, uh, the noetic effects of sin, and we're not able to understand truths about God uh, like, we, like we need to. And so this has implications for how you, how you interact with non-believers, right? Um, you know, when you interact with a non-believer, when you share the gospel with a non-believer, uh, we shouldn't be under the impression that, man, if I could just argue articulately enough, or if I could just be convincing enough, then this person would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. You can't reason someone into the kingdom of God. You can't uh, teach enough facts to an unregenerate mind that they will come to know and understand and embrace the truths of the, of the gospel because of the noetic effects of sin. We actually have an inability in and of ourselves to understand truths about God, and we need God's Holy Spirit to intervene and to, to give us new eyes of faith and to give us new life where we can now all of a sudden understand God when we couldn't before and we can trust God like we couldn't before. So, so all of humanity, right, verse 10, all of humanity is, is under sin and unrighteous and then uh, our, our minds, our intellect is affected by sin, but not just our mind and our intellect, but also the second half, our will and our volition and our desires are affected by sin. No one seeks for, for God. So, so in our natural state, we are opposed to God. We, we incline toward, our bent is to not want God and not want the authority of God in our, in our lives. Most people, most people tend to think of themselves as, as pretty good people. If you go up to a random person and ask them, you know, if they're a good person or not, or ask them if they think they're going to go to heaven, they might say, you know, they would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. Or at the very least, a lot of people probably would say, well, I'm neutral, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not really good, like a lot of really good people that I know, but I'm also not really bad. This is, this is uh, thinking. This idea that, like, I'm good, or specifically that I'm, I'm neutral and have the capacity for good or bad is kind of born out of... Um, <clears throat> a 17th century philosopher named John Locke who uh, propagated that in his writing. He kind of uh, taught this idea of a, a tabula rosa or a, a blank slate. He said that every human being, every mind is born empty as a blank slate and as we live our life, as we walk through life, we kind of write on it. The slate, the, the, the empty mind that we were born into this world with gets filled with good things or or bad things. We're not inherently good or bad. We're inherently neutral. We have the capacity for good or bad, and we can kind of, you know, blaze our trail into the good or blaze our trail into the bad. It's John Locke, the Bible doesn't understand humanity as kind of being a blank slate 
with capacity for good or bad. The Bible understands people as being fallen by their nature. And so we have this bent, we have an inclination not to seek God and not to follow after, after God. We have a, we, you know, we, we might seek power, money, religion, self-sufficiency or self-reliance, but we're not inherently going to seek after, after God. Yeah, that's not to say that human beings don't have agency, right? The ability to make meaningful decisions. It's not to say that we don't have responsibility before God for the decisions that we make because we do. It is to say, though, that we don't have total and complete autonomy to, to will ourselves into being, right? If you, to will ourselves into being something that we're not. If um, a dog, a dog has free will, can do anything it wants, can sit down, lie down, get up, run around, eat, not eat, a dog can do it, but a dog can't decide that it wants to be a cat, right? Or, or a, a banana, right? A dog is a dog, so it's got its, it's got its nature, it's got what it is, and then it's got agency within its nature. A fish, right? swims within the confines of its aquarium. It can't fly and be a bird. A human being has free will and free agency within the confines of who we are and what we are. We can't will ourselves into being something that we are or not. So our will is free, but our will is, is fallen. The effects of sin have, have kind of... Uh, pervasively work their way through our entire life, affecting our mind and how we understand and affecting our will and our volition and what we do and what we, what we desire. And so we have free will within the confines of what our will actually is, which is fallen and, and inclined away from, from God. And then verse 12, we kind of see the, the effect of all of these things, right? The, the extent to which humanity is affected and, and how affected each of us are by it. And it says, all of us have turned aside. No one does good, not even, not even one. So this is the entire spectrum, unrighteous to righteous. We are all opposed to God. It says, together they have become worthless. Which... It's true, right? It's in the Bible, so it's true. So we can't, we can't deny it, we can't get around it. But it's worth kind of pausing and kind of considering um, because, you know, we have to hold this idea that, that together, because of the effects of our sin in our life, we have become worthless before God with the biblical reality that all human beings are created in God's image and therefore possess inherent dignity and value and, and worth. Right? Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. We ba- right? the, the reason why murder is wrong, the reason why abuse and oppression and exploitation are wrong, the reason why abortion is wrong, the reason why racism is wrong, is because humanity was created in God's image and humanity possesses inherent dignity and value and, and worth. And yet at the same time, uh, the, the effects of sin in our lives have in some sense rendered us or rendered our attempts at being righteous enough to please God worthless, right? If you, if you fancy yourself as being on this lifelong mission to be good enough to merit God's favor 
or accomplish enough spiritual good that God will be pleased with you. The effects of sin in our lives essentially say that that attempt is is worthless. So all people, all people regardless of, you know, regardless of any, any factor, you know, race, ethnicity, developmental stage, you name it, all people have inherent worth by virtue of being created in God's image, and all of us have become worthless because of our, our sin, our, our attempts to please God have, have, have beca- they are themselves worthless. Now, people can, you know, th- these are two kind of truths that we need to hold, but there, there, are, there are Christians who might emphasize one of those to the, at the expense of the other. There are Christians who are really big into the image of God and the, the inherent dignity and worth and value that we all have, but not necessarily big on the doctrine of sin. And so they'll, you know, have have messages that are kind of happy and fluffy, right? Hang in there, do your best, have a positive attitude. You're a child of the king, think happy thoughts. God wants you to, to have the things that you want. But they'll seldom mention sin, seldom mention repentance, seldom mention uh, grieving over sin or fighting against sin. And so if you stress the image of God and de-emphasize the doctrine of sin, you lose the gospel, you lose redemption. It becomes man-centered. There's others who are really big into the doctrine of sin. Romans 3 is probably one of their favorite chapters in the Bible, but they kind of don't emphasize the doctrine of the image of God as much as they should, and so they yell at everyone about how bad they are. And how guilty they are. They say that, you know, 9-11 happened because of all the gay people in New York. Or Hurricane Katrina happened because of all the immorality at Mardi Gras. Or they go to, you know, they go to the funerals of soldiers who die on the battlefield and harass the, the grieving family. And so they're like big into like sin, but they seem to have forgotten that we were created in God's image and therefore possess dignity and value and worth. And so Christians need to kind of hold to both of those realities together, right? We need to affirm strongly that every single person, regardless of who they are, where they are, what they have done, that they were created in God's image, they have worth and, they, and value, they deserve to live. And we need to also stress that every single person has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Every single person has, you know, committed all manner of unrighteousness. Every single person has turned away from God and become worthless. Uh, Inherent worth and dignity, but also uh, worthlessness in as much as our ability to please God in and of ourselves. So, Paul's kind of dealt with the intellect, the emotion, the will, right? Uh, the, the, the extent to which sin has kind of worked its way into humanity and kind of wreaked havoc in humanity and in each individual person. And then he kind of starts to paint a picture of what that looks like in our lives, specifically verses 13 and 14. Uh, he quotes from three different Psalms. Uh, Psalm 5 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, and Psalm 10, verse 7, respectively. 
kind of pulls three verses from three different psalms. Their throat is an open grave. They use, the to- they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of cursing and, and bitterness. And so, one massive way that our sin can express itself, one huge indicator to ourselves and to those around us of what's lurking in our heart, the sin that's lurking in our heart is our words, and it's what we say. Matthew 15, Jesus is talking with these guys who are really intent on all of the religious rituals and observances about washing your hands and what you're supposed to eat and not supposed to eat and shellfish and pork and all this stuff. And he says, it's not what you eat that defiles a person. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that, that defiles you, right? What, what you eat, what goes into your mouth, passes through your body and then into the toilet and it's gone. But what comes out of your mouth is actually, it comes from your, your heart. You're more defiled by the words that you say because they are a reflection of what's in your heart than you are by the, the food that you eat or the religious observances that you, that you undergo because they have little to do with your, with your heart. Paul kind of reflects that same thinking, right? Uh, the, the sin has, has affected our mind and our desires and our heart and everything about us in verses 11 and 12. And one way that that sin expresses itself is verse 13 and 14, the words that we, that we say. If you were to consider your own life from the last week, the last month, Consider the words that you said. Consider the tone that you took with your spouse, with your kids, with your colleagues, with your boss, with other drivers on the road, right? If you, if you were to consider the tone that you took and, and the, the words that you say, you know, would you be, would you be, would you be, proud of, of the, the words that you said, or would you be guilty or, or ashamed or, or embarrassed? Because Paul says that our, our words matter a lot. Our words have a unique capacity to express the sin that's in our hearts. You might say, come on, Ben, uh, Right, sticks and sticks and stones will break your bones, but wor- like words don't matter that much. Words will never hurt you, right? That, that's that's kind of we teach our teach our kids that, right? Don't be such a don't make such a big deal out of just it's just words. It's not like I'm hurting anyone physically or taking anything. James, the brother of Jesus, says this in the third chapter of his letter. He says. When we put bits or bridles into the mouths of horses to make them obey this, we can in turn an entire animal or take a ship. This entire large ship is driven by strong winds, but it's steered by a very small rudder that points it wherever it wants to go. Or consider a forest fire. It's set ablaze by such a small, tiny little spark. He says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body but it's a fire, a world of evil. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. So your words matter. Probably they, they matter far more than you think they do, far more than you give them credit for. 
According to Jesus in Matthew 15, your words are indicative of what's in your heart. It's not like, well, I just said it, but I didn't mean it. Your words actually reflect what's in your heart. And according to James, your words are not just indicative of what's in your heart. Your words are determinative of where your life is going, the trajectory that your life is on. So guard your words carefully. Watch your, watch your words very carefully. Matthew 12, on the day of judgment, you will give an account for every careless word that you spoke. Luke 12, what you've said in the dark and in secret will be heard in the daylight. It will be proclaimed from the rooftops. What you say matters. But it's not just what we say. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. So, so uh, it kind of like sit, the, the effects of sin, it's like working itself deeper and deeper in and it's boiling over more and more. It affects your brain, your mind, the noetic effects of sin, how you think. It affects your will and your heart and your desires and your emotions. And then it starts to boil over from your heart and kind of spew out in the words that you say. And then it boils over from there into what you do and how you act. It's the, it's the picture of like a a virus that's just spreading and, and kind of continuing to get its tentacles further and further. Sin is not this passive thing that's looking to coexist with you. Sin doesn't have a live and let live relationship. Sin wants, I mean, uh, God says to Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at, it's the picture of like a, a predatory animal. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to destroy you and control you, but you have to subdue it and rule over it. From the very beginning of scripture all the way through, the the relationship between humanity and sin is be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's not an amicable relationship. It's not a coexist kind of relationship. It's, it's It's a hostile kill or be killed relationship between the Christian and sin. Verse 16. In their paths are ruin and misery. So sin wants to lead you down paths that will destroy you and end in in hurt and ruin and death. The book of Proverbs uh, illumines this uh, specifically. Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If you read Proverbs uh, 4, uh, four chapter, verses, uh, I guess 5, 5 through 9, uh, you'll see this like, this like vivid description, this depiction of sin uh, as, as someone that's calling out seductively, come to me, tur- turn in here. What I offer is good for, for pleasure. No one will, will know. But it uses language that, that you know, indicates that when you give in, it's destruction and ruin and regret. It's like an ox being led to the slaughter. It's like a bird rushing into a snare not knowing that it's going to cost him his very life. It says the house of sin is the way to hell, and it goes down to the chambers of death. Paul says that's kind of how sin leads you subtly and, and seemingly, you know, w- without you even knowing, sin leads you down this path that ends in 
misery and judgment and death and, and hell. It says the way of peace they have not known. The English word, the English word peace means the absence of conflict, more or less. Might, um, might have some other connotations, but that's essentially the, the, the extent of what peace means in, in English. But the Hebrew word here is shalom. This is Greek, but when you look at the, the uh, verse that Paul's quoting, the Hebrew word is shalom, which has a much broader, kind of more expansive uh, semantic range. It not, not only means the absence of conflict, but it means wholeness and completeness, uh, you know, prosperity, welfare, safety, contentment, healthy relationships. All of these things are kind of packed in to the word shalom, which we translate as, as peace. And so what Isaiah was saying in this verse, uh, let's see, Isaiah, uh, where's the, it's in my notes somewhere, I'll get to it in a minute. Um, what, what Isaiah is saying here is that we were created to walk in the way of peace, we were created to uh, experience life with God as it was meant to be, to be lived, at peace with God, at peace with God's creation, at peace with one another, perfect, complete, and whole, and that sin has kind of violently ripped that life of shalom away from us. It's violently ripped the way of peace away from us. And so now, uh, the, the life that God intended for us to live, this life of peace, is at best a distant memory of what God created us to be, but we're not anymore, or at best kind of this aspiration out on the horizon of eternity that we long for, but we're not there yet. But we can't experience it now because sin has kept us from doing so. The way of peace they have not known, and then finally there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's from Psalm 36. saying that sin works its way into the human heart and one of the effects that it has on the human heart is that it takes away its ability to fear God. A lot of people have reservations about this language of of fearing God, but we see it a lot in Scripture. And so we can't shy away from it and we can't... uh, we can't kind of demonize this idea of fearing God because it's in Scripture, so we have to kind of look at it, deal with it. Fear of, like, it, the fear of God is not like, you know, fear snakes or fear roller coasters or like a, you know, a child fears his stepdad who's, who's, Alcoholic or abusive or anything like that. It's a, so, so fe- when we think when we talk about fear, a lot of times we kind of uh, have the association of it's something that's bad, something that wants to hurt me, something that is malevolent inherently, and I'm afraid of it and I fear it. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. Uh, Douglas Stewart puts it this way: He says, "The fear of the Lord that's commanded in Scripture uh, refers to." demanding that God's people always stand in awe of him and that they appreciate his supremacy and his greatness and that they fear the consequences of disobeying his will and that they do not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. 
to the fear of God. So God's not an abusive father. God's not a bad person that wants to hurt his people. But God should be feared. Because God created you. God has ownership rights over you. Right? God is going to judge you. So yeah, the, the, the fear of God has, has everything to do with acknowledging that God's the creator, I am not. God and I are not peers, we're not equals, we don't stand shoulder to shoulder. God is the sovereign king, I bow before him, I lie prostrate on the ground before him. He is the, the sovereign ruler and I am not. He's higher than me, different than me, and bigger than me. And Paul is saying that sin subverts our ability to recognize. One of the effects of sin is that we don't fear God. We don't see God as higher than us. We don't see God as bigger than us, sovereign over us. We don't see God as having the right to tell me what to do or the right to punish me when I don't do what he says. Sin keeps me from fearing God in that way. There's a lot of a lot of, of homardiology. There's a lot of doctrine of sin packed into verses 10 through 18. It affects everyone. It affects our mind, intellect, emotion, our, our will. It affects our words and our language and what we say. It affects our actions and how we treat other people and where we go. And it keeps us from experiencing God's peace. And it keeps us from fearing God the way that we should fear God. And all of that kind of brings us to these last two verses, summing up everything that Paul has said so far in his entire letter. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Everything that we've said thus far about how bad and destructive sin is, how pervasive it is, everything that we've, that we've looked at about how it dominates and how we are under its, its power. Now Paul says, because of that, every single one of us is going to stand before God. Every single one of us is going to have God render a verdict, a judgment against us. And when he does, every single one of our mouths will be stopped. Ever, uh, ever heard someone, someone be accused of something, you know, watching kids or something? He hit me. He took my toy, whatever. And they'll, they'll hear the accusations and they'll say, all right, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I did that. That's right. But in my defense, and then they, then they proceed to like, in my defense, here's why I did it. Or in my defense, here's why I, I shouldn't be considered guilty for having done that thing. In my, so, so Paul is saying, we are going to stand before God. God is going to render a verdict against us and there will be, we will have nothing to say. We will have no, nothing to say in our own defense before God. We will be fully and wholly and entirely accountable to God for how we have lived. No excuses, no arguments, no responses, no objections, no strategies, no loopholes accountable to God, right? Hebrews chapter 4. Every creature will stand before God exposed to his eyes 
and, and giving an account to him. No one is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you were under the impression that you are good enough, that you will be able to stand in the presence of God and speak to how you deserve his approval or how you deserve his acceptance or how you deserve eternal life, Paul is very clear, none of us will have a word to say. Every mouth will be stopped. The the gavel will come down. We will all be pronounced guilty. He goes on to say, if, if that was your intention, if your intention was to stand before God and tell him why you deserve his favor, his approval, his eternal life because of how you've obeyed the law, not only, A, that won't happen. Our mouths will be stopped. We'll be held accountable. But B, that's not even what the law was designed for. That's not the purpose of the, that's not why God created the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law does not exist. God did not give the law so that we could could obey it and, and attain to it and earn the favor of God. Rather, God gave the law. The purpose that the law exists is so that through the law could come knowledge of sin. The law exists not to give us a standard to meet so that God will accept us. The law exists to give us a standard that we could never meet so that we will finally realize that we need God to save us. When you, when you come inside after a long day from working in the yard, dirt, mud, grime, you know, all clean, cleaning gutters, you know, just dirt everywhere, mud everywhere. You come in, you look in the mirror, and you think, man, gross. I need to go take a shower. You go take a shower, you come out, you're clean, then you can go kind of, you know, move about your house without worrying about getting anything else dirty. What was it that cleaned you? You look in the mirror, see that you need to take a shower, go take a shower. Was the mirror, did the mirror have any sort of cleaning effect on you? Or was it the the shower, the shower is what gets you clean. The mirror is what shows you how dirty you are and that you need to take a shower. Without looking in the mirror, you won't know how dirty you are. You might, you might run the risk of tracking dirt throughout the house or sitting on the couch and ruining it or something like that. So the, the mirror points you to that which gets you clean. The mirror doesn't get you clean. The mirror points you to and directs you to that which will get you get you clean. The law of God is intended to be this mirror that God holds up and we see ourselves for what we are, having fallen short of God's glory. And then we are driven to, we are directed to that which can clean us, that which can make us acceptable before God, which is, which is Christ. In Galatians 3, Paul says, the law is not your savior. The law is your tutor or schoolmaster whose job is to bring you to Christ so that you might be justified by faith in him. The, the purpose of the law is to be your guardian, your tutor, and, and to, to usher you into the arms of Jesus who himself will save you when we, when we trust in him. 
every human being who breathes air is under sin, under the power of sin, under the dominion of sin, and every human being is going to stand before God, mouth closed, not a word to say in our own defense, rendered, declared by God to be guilty of having rebelled against him and rejected his authority and turned our back on him. Sin has affected us far more than we know. And God will render his verdict against it and each and every one of us will be crushed under the weight of God's righteous wrath for all of eternity unless we trust in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took your punishment for you. Jesus paid your penalty for you on the cross. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed so that you could receive forgiveness and eternal life if you, if you look to him. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We confess our sin to you. We confess that we have turned aside and become worthless. We have sinned against you with our words and with our actions. We have not feared you as we should. We are guilty before you. And our, our only hope is your grace. And so, Lord, we ask you to save us from our sin through the death and resurrection and substitutionary atonement of, of Jesus, our Savior and our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys can come forward whenever you're, whenever you're ready.